Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, L. Russ. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today, we have Amy Berger on, who wrote The Alzheimer's Antidote, using a low-carb, high-fat diet to fight Alzheimer's disease, memory loss, and cognitive decline. Amy Berger is a certified nutritional specialist, also a nutritional therapy practitioner, and a U.S. Air Force veteran, awesome, who now specializes in using low-carbohydrate nutrition to help people reclaim their vitality. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Elle. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. Like I said, I, I've been a huge fan of Mark Sissons for a long time, and, and you too with a uh, with thyroid. I, I have some thyroid issues myself, and so I really love the information that you're putting out there to help people. Oh, thanks. And your book is great. So needed. So well done. Um, I didn't even know you were really a fan of Mark until we just uh, spoke right before the show. So obviously, always happy to hear that. But I don't know that there's anyone in the low carb keto paleo world who's not a fan of Marxist. And I'm not just saying that. I really, (laughs) truly think he's one of the most rational, sane and intelligent voices in the community. So it's, uh, it's great to be here. Oh, uh, yeah, I know. Oh, my gosh. And I've told everyone on the podcast before, like, he's for real. Like, that's actually him times a thousand. And in real life, he's really that guy. There's no there's no faking it with Mark. He's super, super genuine and down to earth. Um, one, You know, this is such, first of all, your book is great because it, it covers so many things for so many people. This is really not just an Alzheimer's book. And again, in that subheadline, talking about optimizing memory function and and, you know, heading off decline. This is a really important thing, and you talk about this book, and we will get to the whole thing about people calling Alzheimer's, you know, type 3 diabetes, but glucose brain, glucose life, it freaking sucks, people. We know this, and this is one of the biggest areas. People who go keto or low-carb, you know, oh, my mind, my energy, my clarity, my focus. So this is what your book's all about. This is not just for people who have a loved one who has Alzheimer's or they're diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Hopefully, they have someone else reading the book with them. Um, but this is just for everyone's brain and, and what we need to know to optimize that if that's something interested in, which is what I am. So I want to dive right into it. And let's just talk. We'll start off with Alzheimer's. What are the metabolic origins? You know, what causes this? What, what's the deal with Alzheimer's? And for people that don't really know what it is, can you define it for us in layman's terms and give us the snapshot? Uh, sure. I guess in the most general sense, Alzheimer's is a form of dementia or cognitive impairment where um, it's generally characterized by memory loss, but there's not just memory loss. There's personality changes, behavioral disturbances. Uh, You know, people misplace things, put things in odd places. They start to have trouble telling time. Um, It really affects a multitude of, of, you know, mental and psychological issues. Um, in terms of the metabolic origins of it, it's it's hard to well, and I should also say, Alzheimer's tends to affect older people, but it's increasingly prevalent now in younger people. And by younger, I mean fifties and sixties, because you know it used to 
people would joke and call it old timers disease because, you know, it strikes everybody's grandparents. Grandma and grandpa. Right, right. (laughs) Oh, that's always the grandparents. Right. Or like, and it was almost like a senile dementia, like with, with older people, but it's happening younger and younger. And there, there are reasons for that. But the metabolic aspect is, um, there's a lot of debate as to what's actually causing this, but the effect is that neurons in certain areas of the brain lose the ability to harness energy from glucose. So it's basically an energy crisis in the brain. It's a fuel crisis. And um, in somebody who's eating a mixed type diet or a regular diet that's you know relatively high in carbohydrate, glucose is the primary fuel for the brain. So if we have neurons that have lost the ability to get a lot of fuel from glucose, then they basically starve and they they start to atrophy they they can physically measure the the brain volume and it actually shrinks in the advanced stage of the disease so that's the bottom line is that these neurons have lost the ability to use glucose and what is causing that uh, you know that is up for debate i would argue it is largely the diet that many people have been following for many decades but there's there's other issues going into it as well most of which relate to, you know, dietary and lifestyle habits that influence insulin sensitivity. So what about the component of genetics? I mean, if someone has a parent that has Alzheimer's, you know, because that can be always a terrible self-fulfilling prophecy to think that just because someone in your family got it when they get old, that's what's going to happen to you. Is that classic? Is there a high genetic component to this? I mean, I know that there's been some talk of that and I've gotten genetic studies done and they've mentioned things in there. So what's how, how much of it do you think is that? Good question. There is a genetic component to it, but there's, so it's, for people listening, it's the ApoE4 gene. That is the biggest genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's, but that genotype doesn't cause Alzheimer's. Um, It does dramatically increase your susceptibility, but there are a lot of people who have this E4 allele who do not have Alzheimer's, and most people who have Alzheimer's do not have E4, or they're not homozygous, they don't have two E4 alleles. So this increases susceptibility, but it doesn't cause it. And if if you have a family history, it's not a death sentence, it's not for certain that you're going to get this, it tends to run maternally. So if your mother or grandmother, if the females in your family have had this type of dementia, you are more likely to be at risk. And a lot of that has to do with mitochondria. You know, they, more and more research coming out pointing to defective mitochondria, at least contributing somewhat to this condition. And we inherit our mitochondria from our mother. There may be some small exceptions, but generally humans don't inherit mitochondria from from their father. We get it maternally. Well, I want to jump in there on the mitochondria discussion because how important is that to everything? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right, right. I want to drop really quickly because Dave Asprey was just on and he did just write a book all about the mitochondria called Headstrong. So if people are really interested in that subject, that might be something to pair it with. Um, it's really important with thyroid um, and people who have gotten out of type 2 who are hypo for a while and hating it and then insulin resistant and then get better. Part of that process is really trying to impair, I mean, you know, repair and optimize your mitochondrial function. So that's interesting. And that's such a big part of this. Right. Well, it's like mitochondrial dysfunction has become this huge buzzword, right? It's associated with everything, with Alzheimer's, with Parkinson's, with MS, with diabetes, with everything, uh, with cancer, especially. So, okay, mitochondrial dysfunction is contributing, but what's making the mitochondria dysfunctional in the first place? You know, a lot of things, any, any number of things in Alzheimer's, I think there's a huge dietary component, whether that's, you know, too much 
carbohydrate too frequently or, you know, too many fragile, damaged fatty acids. There's a lot of components, but, you know, even if mitochondrial dysfunction... Even too low fat, right? Too low fat over time, a chronically low fat diet can... Right, right. Yeah, but so, something, if, if the mitochondria are contributing, we have to go back and say, well, what's messing with the mitochondria? All right, so there's other conditions of with, I mean, obviously this is a low carb or slash ketogenic, depending on what you need to do for yourself type of program and sort of expose. I want to just sideline over to epilepsy for a second because that's another sort of brain disease, I guess you would call it, or issue that people who go ketogenic and also follow this, it improves their situation. They get less seizures. You know, obviously there's something here when it comes to the brain, right? We know this. So can you explain that a little bit, even though I know your book's focused on Alzheimer's, but sort of interesting and maybe people with loved ones out there who, you know, know people with epilepsy would benefit. Yeah. So this, this diet, the, the ketogenic diet was developed initially specifically for epilepsy and it's been used for over a hundred years, um, in, especially in cases where people were not responding to medication. So people whose seizures did not respond to anti-epileptic drugs, most of them do respond to the ketogenic diet, whether that means the seizures resolve completely or they just happen much, much less frequently. Um, these people generally show a lot of benefit. And I think it just, the ketogenic diet affects metabolism and cellular energy production in so many ways. And there's really no organ, gland, or tissue that is not affected by the changes that happen with the ketogenic diet. So um, in the brain, it's just, it kind of cools the excitability. You know, seizures might be caused by glutamate excess or calcium excess or all kinds of different uh, imbalances. And the ketogenic diet seems to normalize that sort of flux. And it's, it's a, you know, it's a different mechanism in Alzheimer's. I think it's a different mechanism in Parkinson's. But the fascinating thing is that just about every neurological condition that's been studied so far either has shown clinical benefit with a ketogenic diet or uh, there's at least a plausible mechanism by which it could do so if they were to test it eventually. Yeah, and even on that note of not something that's necessarily a disease per se, but people dealing with serious anxiety and other issues that would be associated with you know, blood sugar and cortisol swings would also benefit as well, if that in fact was what was causing it. But always a good rule out, right, before maybe jumping to something more serious. Can you touch on, and this stood out to me because... When I was pre-diabetic, I had very sticky, thick blood. And you mentioned sticky, damaged cells in here, talking about gly glycation and that whole topic. I, it's not that I want to uh, be like, hey, frighten everybody about sugar and glycation and you know, the process of it, but, but it, is, it is frightening. And um, I, I just want you to talk about that and how that works in our body and why it leads to the problems that it does, why excess glucose does this to us in our brains. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I liken it to, you know, the blood is supposed to be watery. It's supposed to be very fluid and very easy flowing. And when you have chronically high blood glucose, you know, this, this isn't going to happen like you know, one off every now and then you like to have a donut or every now and then you have whatever. But, you know, for people that are constantly all day long having very high blood sugar, instead of being like water, your blood, think of it more like molasses or maple syrup. It's like thicker, it's more viscous, it's not going to flow as smoothly, it's not going to deliver nutrients and oxygen as as efficiently as as blood that is not as as thick. And in the brain, it just, everything just becomes this sticky mass that 
it impairs cellular communication. You know, it impairs the ability of neurons to pass messages back and forth among themselves. And I think that this plays a role in hypertension. It plays a role in neuropathy. You know, any anything where blood is not being delivered to the tissues efficiently is going to have some type of negative effect on on just about everything. Which would make perfect sense why when diabetics or pre-diabetics like myself at the time had sticky, thick, you know, sludgy blood, um, it makes sense that it would go down the road, right, of cutting off circulation to certain areas, right? Not flowing to certain limbs, places where it should and causing tissue damage, right. um, which is right. A lot of diabetics sometimes, unfortunately, have to deal with that uh, circumstance. So it makes it makes total sense when you look at the domino flow of it. I, th- I think it does. And, and you know, the stickiness, it's it's kind of like it's think about leaving leaving a lollipop out on a hot day like you, your, your child accidentally leaves a lollipop on the on the wooden table. And what happens that that sugar melts and just becomes sticky and then it hardens it hardens eventually and it becomes really brittle. And this happens, I think, to cells. It happens to blood vessels. You know, how many diabetics have uh, burst blood vessels in their eyes? And they're, like you said, with, with neuropathy or they lose feeling in their limbs, like because it's just these, th- these cells and, and, and the blood vessels are breaking. When we talk about low carb and getting into this, even for people, again, you know, so let's say, let's start with the worst case scenario and say that someone, you know, has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and you know, you're either helping that person with this diet or they're lucid enough still at this point to maybe remember and figure things out. Is that straight go to a keto? I mean, obviously, I, I don't think you would suggest immediate. Maybe in that case, I'm sure you would suggest gradually get there. But is in all cases, if you've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, is that pretty much a straight up keto versus like a moderate low carb? Good question. I think it depends on the severity and it depends on what the person is willing to do. If somebody's willing to jump full bore into a very low carb, higher fat diet, I think that's great and they should do it. I don't think everyone requires that because there's there's multiple things feeding into this condition. You know, it's not just the diet. There could be people that are actually eating relatively well already, but maybe their sleep is really, really terrible, like either in quantity or quality. Maybe they're very sedentary or um, extremely stressed out, type A, never, never a moment's rest. All of these things could be contributing to poor insulin and glucose dynamics in the body. Um, so I would, I would recommend blood work first, but, uh, you know, especially, especially an insulin test, a fasting insulin test, because a lot of people will have normal glucose and normal hemoglobin A1C. So you think, wow, they don't have really have a problem with, with sugar, except the only reason those things are kept normal is because insulin is sky high. So that's really important to see. Um, even in the absence of those tests, though, I don't think everyone requires a ketogenic diet because, you know, even people without dementia, just people who are trying to lose weight or, or reverse chronic pain or just heal some other condition, they don't always have to go strict ketogenic, but it, it, you know, most of them will benefit from being low carb, at least to some extent, you know, at, at, at the very least, remove the worst offenders from the diet, get rid of the obvious sources of sugar and refined starch. Right. And all the inflammatory factors and crappy oils, of course. This is what's great about your book is that you actually do something most people are looking for all the time, which is you really break down uh, what what this would look like in terms of calories and fat and protein and carbs per day. And obviously, there's you know there's online uh, algorithmic you know apps and things like that to plug in to figure out your macros. But let's talk about this four tiered approach 
uh, to a low carb, high fat dietary plan and how you lay that out. Okay. Um, I don't have the book in front of me. I'll try to remember. (laughs) Well, we don't have to go through all of them. I mean, I guess just why those are broken down in the way they are and why there's a four tiered approach versus a one tier or, you know what I mean? Just in the philosophy of it, I don't expect you to, yeah, yeah, let's not go through the pie charts. (laughs) (laughs) It, it, it really boils down to someone's degree of insulin sensitivity or carbohydrate tolerance. Some people might require staying under, you know, 30, if not 20 grams of carbohydrate a day, whereas other people might do just fine upwards of, you know, 60 to 75, if not more grams of carbohydrate per day. So um, I don't think that everyone needs to really, really go ultra low carb. Um, I think you can probably start out maybe under 60, under 50, because for, for most people, that's going to be a dramatic reduction of carbohydrate. Into, you know, for someone like you or me or, or, you know, people already doing low carb, 60 or 75 grams might sound like a lot, but to someone else coming off of 200 to 300 grams a day, 60 is actually pretty low and they might see a pretty good benefit from that. If they don't, then I recommend taking it even lower. Um, and you can, you know, you can test your blood sugar. You can, I don't really recommend testing ketones for a number of reasons, but people can test ketones if they want to see if they're even getting into that range, depending on how much carbohydrate they're eating. And then the other factor is protein. A lot of people, especially the elderly, I think are under consuming protein. So I don't, I don't want people to go too low in protein and, um, classical ketogenic diets tend to be restricted in protein too. And I think compared to what the average older person is eating, I wouldn't want them to be thinking they need to worry about eating too much protein because I think most of them actually are not eating enough of it. Right. So in their situation, it might be a a change in macros. They're a little bit on the protein for them. Right. So it's interesting, (laughs) you know, everybody's interested in trying ketosis and getting into it. They also think it's going to be a quick fix. And, you know, there are so many problems and mistakes people make along the way. And, you know, one is overeating protein. You know, one is overeating fat even, um, just overeating in general, even if it's um, just protein and, and fat. And people think, oh, well, if I just don't eat carbs. But, you know, you can get fat on a low-carb diet. <laughs> if you're, I've, I've done it, I've unfortunately. Done it too. <laughs> I've done it too. I learned the hard way. I did too, and that's why I bring it up because I feel like it's really important for people not to just jump in and say, oh, I'm going to go below this carb level. You know, read your book, you know, look into ketosis, research it first. There's so many other, you you might need a little bit more sodium um, and maybe even cycle it more. Some people might not be able to stay there for very long. There's some people who even I've learned through the, um, is it the the ketogenic kitchen? Um, These two cancer survivors who, you know, promote ketogenic uh, diets for cancer, going through it, recovering, preventing. Um, They said that there are certain instances where then, depending on the person's specificity with their cancer, it might not be appropriate, you know what I mean? Or they might have to go higher carbs. So clearly everyone out there, don't just jump into ketosis. But if you do look at all this stuff and it's tough at first, I think that the hardest for me, and maybe this is why we've both made mistakes is it was hard to go from a lot of protein, what I was eating visually, mentally to chop it down, you know, but now that I'm there, that seems normal. And the before seems ridiculous. (laughs) Like, you know, the amount of protein that I used to eat is so much more than it is now. And I can't even imagine eating that level, but it was such a hard thing to break, right? 
don't you think? Uh, well, I don't know. I might have a little bit of a different perspective. For me, um, I've actually cut back on fat recently for the purpose of, of weight loss and body fat loss. Um, I was one of these people that was kind of going overboard on fat. So I've cut a little bit back on fat. I, I'm not eating a lot of protein, but I'm eating adequate protein. I'm certainly not going out of my way to cut protein. But it's the thing with the ketogenic diet is, you know, it needs to be tweaked and modified depending on what the goals are. You know, is somebody's goal to lose body fat or to get to like a very, very low body fat percentage? Are they cutting for a, a bikini competition versus somebody with Alzheimer's disease? You know, the dietary recommendations for those two groups of people, while they're both low carb, they would, they would be slightly different in other ways. Right, and absolutely considering the athletic output of somebody training for a bikini competition versus a 90-year-old guy um, versus grandpa. Yeah, who, who's not going to also be as active. Um, what are some of the improvements, success stories? You know, I, I've, I've heard a couple where people have just sort of lit up um, either by exogenous ketones or by doing the ketogenic diet, like people who have had Alzheimer's. And it's not like a full reversal, but people who have really seeing a change in their family member when going ketogenic where they feel like a, a little bit of a light bulb went off and they were a little clearer or forgot less. What are some of the stories out there that are, you know, related to the benefits of going ketogenic for Alzheimer's? Right. Uh, for me, I've had very, very few clients actually approach me for this yet because I think they just didn't know that the information was there. But now that the book is coming out, I think, um, I will hopefully start amassing a lot of these success stories. But yes, there's plenty uh, anecdotally and also in clinical trials where they've done either ketogenic diets or exogenous ketones and they have uh, you know, observed noticeable improvements in subjects with, with Alzheimer's disease or with a precursor mild cognitive impairment. And you know, the thing is, sometimes th these are done for the short term. They're, you know, most often it's exogenous ketones rather than a ketogenic diet. So I tend to think, okay, the exogenous ketones are great, but they're very short-lived. They have a very short half-life and then they're gone. What would, how much more of a benefit would we see if somebody was in a low level of ketosis 24-7? And, and either, either that alone or the ketogenic diet in combination with extra ketones from the outside. But yes, I mean, overall, they have shown some benefit. This stuff is in its infancy. I mean, I hope it grows. I hope it grows quickly now and we can start amassing more stories. But the the real um, the real impressive one so far is Dr. Dale Bredesen's work. He's coming out with his own book, I think, this summer. But he's had some small studies where he has reversed Alzheimer's disease. You know, these people were unable to work. They had to leave their jobs. They had become so far down the disease process. And um, he has a multifactorial intervention. It's not just the diet. And he doesn't even use a ketogenic diet. He uses a, a low glycemic diet, more of like a Mediterranean approach. Um, but it also includes better quality sleep, very targeted supplementation, um, meditation, you know, a lot of different factors. So we can't put it all down to the diet, but certainly that is, um, that's a factor. It's really a fascinating topic. How, let's get, let's get to your story, which I usually start off with, but what brought you down this road? What kind of life were you living? Clearly you adopted it. So I'd love to hear that journey of what life was like before getting into this and how you got there. Sure. I was like so many people out there, um, I was overweight and I was overweight in spite of doing what I thought at the time were all the right things. 
you know, a good low fat diet, lots and lots of exercise. I've run two marathons and I was very chubby at the finish line of both of them. <laughs> um, you know, th- <laughs> Brad thanks. Kearns would be very happy to hear that in one sense because he'd be like, up oh, primal endurance. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if I, as they say, if I knew then what I know now, I mean, you know, thanks for nothing, carb loading. I, I didn't know that me or me, mere mortals like me did not need to carb load for a four mile short day run or even for an eight or 10 mile run. So um, I eventually stumbled upon the Atkins book and it just made sense. Um, The way that this changes your metabolism made sense to me. And I I tried it and it worked and I would never look back. And I I am not perfect. I am certainly not a low carb or or dietary saint. You know, I have my moments where I eat certain things, but I've identified the degree of wiggle room that I have. And um, for me, it really was about weight. You know, I was young enough when I found this that I didn't have any chronic health issues. I didn't have any, you know, chronic pain, nothing like that. But there's no doubt in my mind that if I had continued to eat the way I was, I would have had some stuff going on. There's my, I have a family history of type two diabetes and obesity. And and I just, I know that if I had continued doing what I was doing in spite of all the exercise, I would have ended up very sick. Um, so now I just, I just want to share it with people. I mean, who wouldn't love a way of eating where you get to be healthy and have energy and have sharp thinking and you get to eat steak and blue cheese and bacon and, and, <laughs> and vegetables. Yes. You know, vegetables too, but, but wait, if I can eat the steak with blue cheese and bacon at the same time, I mean, that's come on. I mean, when you get better than that, who wouldn't, who wouldn't <laughs> sign on for that? So how could you say no? Oh, oh my gosh. It's great. Uh, no, that's awesome. I love how, uh, you jumped into this topic and this is so needed at this point. I know so many people are looking into this for so many treatments of Alzheimer's and other, just other conditions, you know, and just, again, people who want to have, like you said, awesome focus, not having a nap and slump in the afternoon and have a level of, it's a level of mental motivation as well, right? Other than just focus, there is a energy and, you know, people out there sometimes they think of it being like hyped up or amped up kind of energy. And it's really not, it's this interesting mental clarity and focus that's again, makes so much sense. And yeah, it's mental clarity and focus, but I think it's a good way of saying it is like balanced moods. Your moods are stabilized. You, you don't have this this irrational anger and irritability because you're hypoglycemic or your energy is crashing. Uh, you know, I've, I, I, I remember what that was like and even, even road rage. And, you know, sometimes when I watch the news or even when I'm on the road and I see people doing very angry, very dangerous things, all I can think is, you know, I just feel bad because that person is probably on the blood sugar roller coaster. You know, that's not everything. I'm sure there's other things going on too, but when you, when you have a constant stable, long burning fuel supply at the ready all the time, um, I feel like we become much better able to handle the everyday life stressors. We don't have this like these irrational outbursts, you know, fighting angry with, with strangers on the internet for no reason, like all of this anger, because I think people just, they can't control it. And, and how much of that is diet? I don't know, but I think it's a big piece. Right. Like, I wonder how many angry reviews on Yelp there are of of blue cheese bacon steaks. (laughs) Probably very minimal. Um, Let's talk about, you you have a blog and a website. How do you connect with people? How can we connect with you? 
Um, my blog is Tuit Nutrition, T-U-I-T, nutrition.com. And it's a, it is mostly a blog now. I'm going to be making it more content heavy in the coming weeks and months. Um, I, I want it to be a good resource for people who are new to low carb, you know, what to eat, what not to eat. That's not really on there yet, but it will be soon. What about social media? Do we just go to your website and connect to social media from there? The blog is the best, but I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is Tuit Nutrition. Uh, I get on Facebook now and then, but I, I'm much act, more active on Twitter. And where can we find your book, The Alzheimer's Antidote? Uh, the official release date, uh, according to Amazon anyway, is uh, March 24th. So um, it's, it should be available in bookstores everywhere and uh, obviously on Amazon. And you can get it through my publisher's website also, Chelsea Green. Right. Chelsea, I think it's ChelseaGreen.com. It is ChelseaGreen.com. I have it. And of course, I'll put all of those links into the show notes. What else would you like to leave our audience with um, on this topic or anything? Oh, you know, I actually wanted to, I, I, I skipped over a little bit I want to touch on, which is just this uh, last part of your book, which is really great about, you know, setting yourself up for success. If we could just go through maybe a couple of those, because that would help everybody no matter what path they're on. Sure. Um, I guess the first thing is to rule out any conditions that might contraindicate you doing a low carb, high fat diet, because there are some, uh, once that's established, I think you want to have some moral support if you can, if you can find a diet buddy, whether it's someone in your family, in your household or a good friend, someone to do this with you. Um, because you know, some of us will see what to eat, see what not to eat, and we can do it on our own and it's no problem. And other people really struggle and it will help to have someone, especially in the same household who eats the same way. And other than that, you've got to get your kitchen ready. You know, like you said, I, I was in the air force. You don't, you don't go into battle without the proper gear. If you're going to do a low carb diet, you better stock your fridge and your pantry with, with some staples and some essentials and get, you know, a good, all you really need is a good pot and a good pan, maybe a crock pot. And, uh, and it's good, but you have to, you have to be ready to, to cook this kind of food. It's, it's, um, you will probably be cooking a lot more than, than you're used to if you're not already eating this way. Right. And also I like the whole idea of, you know, cleaning out the cupboards, you know, preparing, getting everything ready to go. Maybe that means stocking the freezer, et cetera. All of that too is a great beginning excitement, motivation. That in itself feels it, you're taking a step, you know? So it's just, it's the light way to step into it, you know, and then you just get excited about it as you go forward. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to, this isn't complicated either. I mean, most of the people listening probably already cook this way and eat this way and it's easy. But for people that, that it's new to, you know, I don't, they shouldn't be intimidated. It's a lot easier than it sounds. You just jump in and start, get rid of the most obvious sources of, of carbohydrate and sugar and junk and bad fats. Like that's step one. And then from there, worry about the details. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And again, we'll put all of the links to connecting with you in our show notes and uh, we wish you the best with your book. It's great. Once again, it's called The Alzheimer's Antidote. You can find it on Amazon.com or go to toitnutrition.com. Thanks again. Thanks so much, Elle. Great chatting with you. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. 
If you dream of a career in health coaching, but have been held back by worries, such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching. And we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit primalhealthcoach.com and subscribe.